Hey, Chapel Street Church. I'm excited to talk to you about something called Rooted. Some of you already know about Rooted. It's been part of our church for a number of years now. Uh, several years ago, we were thinking and praying about, if you ask the average person who's part of Chapel Street what's next in their spiritual journey, we had a thousand different answers. And we felt like we needed one clear next step. And that's what Rooted has become. It's a 10-week journey through the gospel and scripture built around experiences. That's what makes it unique. It's not just study and filling in the blank answers. It's built around experiences through 10 weeks in community. There's a serve experience. There's a prayer experience. And these things combined in community help change people's lives. I've talked to many of you who have been deeply impacted by Rooted. Uh, some of you who are mature believers might be thinking, well, this is, I've already passed this. Not so. It's for you. If you're a brand new believer, it's for you. If you call Chapel Street your home and you're looking for the next step in your life with Christ in our community of faith, Rooted is exactly for you. We encourage you to take part in it. There's a new round of Rooted groups launching very soon. In, in fact, I've talked to so many people, one individual just recently who's been through it three times and said every time they learn something new. So I want to encourage you, if you call Chapel Street your home and you're feeling like God is moving you to take a next step in your faith in the new year, get involved in a Rooted group. Don't take my word for it. We want you to hear from those who've been part of it. This is our second time through Rooted. You probably learned more going through it with another group of people and uh, seeing new members of this new campus share their experiences, share their testimonies, growing in their faith. It's been my first Bible study, probably going to uh, change my opinion of future Bible studies just because it is so unique, so different. It's really reminded me that you know, you're loved for who you are. There's nothing you need to do in order to get that love. As I reflect back at significant moments in my Christian life, I had no idea Rooted would become so impactful. I've gained eight new deep relationships with people who were relatively strangers a few weeks before. Every week that I'm learning more and more, honestly blowing my mind as a philosophy nerd and just a science nerd, it's the coolest thing to realize that we get to have a personal relationship with the Lord of the universe. Well, if you have not done Rooted yet, I would strongly encourage you to jump in. I know there's a whole crew of people in here who have done Rooted. Uh, and I just want to say in particular, I'm grateful for you. Uh, for those who have done Rooted, for those that have led Rooted, you've helped us, especially as a new campus, really launch into community and, and set about ourselves upright. So, uh, if, but if you haven't, I would really invite you to do this. This is a, a really unique uh, an interesting way of you getting deeper with the people that you go to church with, to be able to share life with them. Uh, it's a 10-week course. If you want to learn more about it, you can stop by Welcome Desk. I would be glad to talk to you. Eric would. Any of our staff would. Uh, and we, we want you to do this because this has been so instrumental for our church at large uh, and we know here at North Aurora, we want to keep this going. And the more that we can go through it together, the more leaders we've got and more opportunities for other people to jump in on this as well. We need you to do that. So... Uh, I hope that you would choose to do that. Again, if you need anything, let us know. And the next session is going to be starting September 11th, uh, so time is on. Well, we've got two weeks left in our current series that we've been going through as a church, By Faith. Uh, hopefully it has been as encouraging for you as it's been for me. Sometimes I do actually leave churches a little bit grumpy. I don't like how God is pushing on my buttons and telling me to have faith. I'm like, just back off, okay, Savior? But I, uh, I've been struck by how many of these stories are just so incredible, aren't they? I mean, we read through Abraham all the way through now. We've gone through uh, up to Rahab today. And every single one of these stories, just it's an incredible story. It's stories that we had probably when we were little kids. We've had them, all of them, amazing, amazing. So it's got me thinking about what makes a really good story. 
What makes a good story? Well, of course, being British, I'm from the country of Shakespeare, so I know. I know what makes a good story. No, I'm just kidding. I have very bizarre tastes. If you know me well, my great stories to me are like Avengers movies, Lord of the Rings, things like that. It would not be my wife's favorite choice of story. Uh, but maybe you are into some kind of classic novels. I remember growing up, one of my favorite stories was To Kill a Mockingbird. It was one of the few books I was forced to read in school that I actually enjoyed. Uh, I didn't want to enjoy it, didn't want to read it, but got into it, loved it all, it was great. Even watched the Gregory Peck movie about it. But if you asked me what I think the greatest story is, it is a movie, uh, and it's this one right here, when it pops up. There we go, Forrest Gump. If you want to get into an argument with me, I'd be happy to take you up on that, because I will defend this movie. I think it's a great movie, it's got comedy, it's got drama, it's got romance, it's got action. This is the apex of cinematic storytelling. And what it makes it so interesting to me is it is the story of a man of whom people expected very little, who all of a sudden, decade after decade, he ends up at the center of the most monumental moments in all of history. This man that no one expected very much of, these incredible things keep happening to him. He flips the script on his own life and things happen to him that he would never have believed. And often he doesn't understand. But we are going through this series looking, in a lot of ways, at stories where God flips the script. Where people that we might not have expected much of, God does great things in their life and through their lives. And the hero of faith that we look at today in Hebrews is a woman who certainly embodies that. A woman called Rahab. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This morning I want to consider this, that biblical faith is the means by which God rewrites stories. Faith is the means by which God rewrites stories. Remember that the people receiving this letter of Hebrews for the very first time, they were a collection of Christians at the very start of the church, shortly after Jesus had ascended, and they are living in a difficult time to be a Christian. Persecution, all kinds of different things, and perhaps they needed to be reminded that faith writes better stories. In particular, that faith writes better stories than fear. So this morning I want us to examine ourselves and ask, who is authoring our story? Is it us? Or is it the God in whom Rahab put her faith? We look at her faith and we see three things. Faith in a pursuer, in a protector, and faith in a provider. Let's talk about the pursuer first. I want to tell you a story as I was thinking this week about the kinds of people that God pursues. I came across a story um, that you'll understand the connection in a moment of someone who discovered something pretty incredible. In about 2006, there was a Filipino fisherman fishing off his island and he came across a two foot long giant stone that looks like that. And he was unsure of what this is, so he took it home, he put it under his bed and for 10 years, that's where it stayed. Ten years, this was a stone that he kept as a good luck charm that he'd found one day fishing. And then one day, a fire starts in his house, and unfortunately, his house burns down. But as a part of coming in afterwards and cleaning up and evaluating his possessions, someone comes across this stone and discovers it to be the largest pearl ever discovered. It weighed 75 pounds and was valued at over 100 million U.S. dollars. Yeah. 
Everybody's gonna go home, check under their bed tonight. Where's that lucky charm? A hundred million dollars. Can you imagine what it felt like to realize that that value was right there in your home and you had no idea? That something of that significance and importance was right there. To this day, it remains the largest pearl ever discovered. But he had no idea. See, God finds value in unexpected places and unexpected people. And because of that, he is a God who pursues. He sees what we don't. Rahab's story starts this way in Joshua 2. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the Israelites, to set us up here, the Israelites have arrived at what God has said is the promised land. It was a land called Canaan at the time, filled with people called the Canaanites. And God had said, this is the land to whom I have promised Abraham. But they knew after 40 years of living in the wilderness, with these hostile groups living in Canaan, they were going to have to fight for their space. So Joshua, who was taken over from Moses, he is kind of the leader of the people, and he decides, I'm going to send some spies into this first city, Jericho, to kind of find out what the situation is here. Now, it's a bit of an odd story um, for three reasons. First of all, Joshua sends these spies into the city of Jericho in verse 1 of chapter 2. And by verse 2, the king has heard about it. Worst spies in history. It takes one verse for them to be discovered. Now, the second thing that's odd about it is, it's odd that you would begin a military campaign in Canaan with Jericho as your starting point. Because Jericho was the most fortified city in the entire land. It has no strategic cleverness about it at all. You were going to have to do more with this city. What would have made more sense is to kind of route out the smaller tribes and smaller cities, gather resources so that you could then come back and take on Jericho. So why start in Jericho? And the last thing that makes it interesting is this whole narrative, everything that happens in chapter two, doesn't even really serve the purpose of the larger story of the Israelites going into the promised land. The spies don't gather any strategic information. All they do is they come out and they say, well, they were afraid of us. But they don't tell them about what the guards are like, what the military is like. They don't tell them anything of real strategic value. You could jump from chapter one to chapter three and the story of God seemingly goes on as the way it was meant to. So why chapter two? Because of Rahab. Because God was pursuing this woman. God wanted to find her. Who is Rahab? Well, Scripture makes three things clear about Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile, meaning that she was of non-Jewish descent. And at this time, to be a Gentile in the eyes of the Jewish people, that was a very deeply, uh, ethnically difficult thing. And difficult to put in it politely. If I was to be honest with you, the Jewish people were rather racist towards Gentiles. They saw them as less, as insignificant, as not important to God. She was a woman, and in this time in history, you were a second-class citizen if you were a woman. And to top it off, she was a prostitute. 
a sinful woman. And so not only was she the wrong ethnicity, no, 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 she wasn't just the wrong gender, she was the wrong person altogether. This was someone who in the eyes of every one of God's people, they would have said, God doesn't want anything to do with her. But he does. The God of scripture is in pursuit of Rahab. He's looking for her. He's searching for her. Rahab's not gonna come to him. He's gonna come to her. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is a God of pursuit. Do you believe that the God of the universe, of the heavens and the earth, is pursuing you? That his eyes are fixed upon you? Do you believe that no matter what you've done, no matter what your background, God is looking for you? Sometimes we can convince ourselves that we must win God's attention by having everything together. We've got to be the right kind of person. We've got to have the right kind of background. We've got to have the right kind of faith. We have to write ourselves a better story, but the opposite is true. It's because God has set his love on you that his attention is towards you that you are able to come to him, to have your story rewritten from what it was to something more. You're not invisible to God. You're not outside of his reach. You are not beyond his affection and his favor. I want you to think for a moment what it would have been like to be Rahab. I was watching a sermon on Rahab this week and Pastor Matt Chandler, a guy from Texas, he said something that really helped me put into perspective what kind of life Rahab would have lived. That before this week, I had never put any attention on it all. He said, no little girl dreams of growing up to be a prostitute. You become a prostitute because very wicked, evil, demonic, and deplorable things happen to you. You are used and abused, treated like a soulless recreational vehicle for other people's pleasure. But God's eyes were on that woman, that woman who had suffered, who perhaps felt rejected by everyone, was not rejected by God. See, brokenness isn't a barrier to God's work in your life. It's the very reason that he comes to you because he has compassion in your sin and brokenness to meet you, to rescue you, to heal you. But just like the communities of Rahab's day, we can all too quickly put up barriers between ourselves and the people that we think God doesn't want. We push people to the outsides and we ignore them. We can even dehumanize them. And what we must remember in Rahab's story is that the Israelite spies were not just spies, they were missionaries. Whatever they thought about themselves and their mission, clearly God had sent them to meet this woman. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to be on mission. Every single one of us, it doesn't matter whether we are out in the furthest reaches of the earth, all of us who call the name of Jesus are missionaries. Meaning that the details of your life, the circumstances of your life, the relationships around you have been given to you so that you might bring hope and healing and the good news of Jesus to people who need it. You will reach people that I will never reach. You will engage with communities that I will never even know exist. You have been sent to find those like Rahab. We shouldn't marvel at God can love and save and set his attention on people like Rahab. 
All of us should look at ourselves and marvel and wonder that God can set his attention and his love on people like me. And that is why the people of God are not commended for their flawless records, but for their faith in their pursuer, in the one who seeks them and comes for them. Second thing that makes up Rahab's faith is faith in her protector. Now, when I was a kid, I was a target for bullies. I don't know why. I know I'm an intimidating guy that people should be afraid of. But they they found reasons to get me. But then I met a guy called Big Mike. And Big Mike was exactly how he sounds, big fella, about 6'7", 6'8". But he had the heart of a teddy bear. He was the nicest guy maybe I've ever met. Loved laughing with people, loved taking care of people, was gentle. But people were afraid of Big Mike. And I remember this one occasion in particular, we were out with Mike, and uh, some trouble started. I will spare you the details. And Big Mike showed up. Now, when it was just me by myself, it was not looking good for me or my face. But when Big Mike showed up, the entire atmosphere of the room changed. And I found myself thinking, I like being friends with Big Mike. Gives me a confidence, it gives me a hope. When I'm with Big Mike, things change. Did you know that if you know God, there's a confidence you can have that things can change? The atmosphere in the world around you will be changed by his presence. This is what Rahab knew. In Joshua 2, it goes on, when the men are hidden, Rahab comes to them and she makes this confession of faith. As the men lay down, she came to them up on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For you have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then if we jump to 18, they give her some specific instructions. They say, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. See, what impacted Rahab, what kindled her faith, was hearing stories about the God of the Israelites. This God who had liberated slaves out of what was certainly the most powerful nation on earth at the time. This God who in the wilderness seems to have miraculously provided food and sustenance for people for 40 long years. This God who whenever enemies attacked the Israelites, he overcame them and he destroyed them, he defeated them. Rahab hears those stories and she wants to know that God. Because that God is offering what Jericho had never offered her, hope. And so she shows her faith, she makes this confession of faith, and in there is three things, confidence, commitment, and vulnerability. First, confidence. She says to these people, she says that I know the Lord has given you the land. 
Our hearts melt in us because we've seen who your God is. She has this confidence in what he's able to do. Now, I want to point out, she lived in the largest and most fortified city in in Canaan, Jericho. No one on that city would have been troubled in the slightest by a group of former slaves that have wandered around in the desert. But before they have even lifted a finger against Jericho, Rahab confesses, God's invisible protection is greater than Jericho's walls. Now, do we have that kind of confidence that God's grace is greater than anything that we can build for ourselves as some kind of defense? Let me ask you, what makes you feel more secure, the love of God or a full bank account? What makes you feel more grounded, the sovereignty of God or the political climate of the United States? What makes you feel safer and more hopeful? Is it the grace of God or is it a stable career? Is it the right relationship? Is it A, B, C, D? Anything that we form for ourselves with our own hands will always pale when compared to the security that we will find in the love of God. Psalm 3.3 says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's Psalm 27. See, what we must do is we have to confront those parts of ourselves that have trusted in lesser things, where we've trusted in chariots and horses instead of the name of the Lord, where we've tried to build shields for ourselves instead of saying, God, you are my shield. Because it is in God alone that we find the lifter of our head. who will hold us together when the storms come. Second thing we see is Rahab makes a commitment. She tells the spies that she wants to go with them. She wants to join the people of God. Let me leave Jericho behind and come with you wherever you go. Now think for a moment what that kind of decision would have meant for her and her life. Would have changed everything. It would mean loss of friends. It would certainly mean loss of income. Her whole career is going to have to change. It would mean that the rest of Jericho would look on her as a traitor. Maybe even on her own family. But Rahab, in faith, is ready to give her allegiance to God. She's ready to make a commitment to God. To follow his way. To do whatever he asks of her so that she might walk with him and his people. See, to walk with God is to make a commitment to trust his way. The spies give her these instructions. They say, when we come into the city, we want you to put a scarlet cord in your window, a symbol so that we might see and know to pass by. Now, I use the word pass by because if we go back to last week, what did we hear? That God instructed the Hebrew people, put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost so that when the angel of death comes, he'll pass over you, that you'll have a symbol of faith by which you will be saved. And now, the same group of people that experienced that tell Rahab, hey, put a symbol of faith in your window so that we will know. And she does it. Now, I must confess that I struggle in my commitment to God because I like salvation, I like the idea of growth, I like hope, but I want it my way. I don't want to follow God's way. I don't want to have to put myself under his rule. Just being honest. Even as a pastor, there are moments in my life where I say, God, I don't like the way that you're doing that. 
I might ask about the things that he wants me to deal in my life. I might ask about the resources that I have that he's asking me to share and to be generous with. I might find all those things and say, God, I'm ready to trust you. I'm not ready to be committed to you though. I'm not ready to do what you've asked of me. Now praise God that his commitment to me doesn't falter when my commitment to him does. Praise God that by faith, God will gently teach me and grow me and help me to let go of everything that is worthless. And friends, that's what we need to do. When we see the story of Rahab, choose to have a faith in something better to make that commitment to the one who is committed to us. And lastly, Rahab has a vulnerability. See, Rahab risks it all to do this. This is not something small. This is not something easy. Rahab is exposing herself to the people of Jericho and to the people of God. You don't typically treat spies who've come in to destroy your city as someone you want to invite around for tea, okay? And she does. And at the same time, the choice that she's made, putting the scarlet thread in the window, it would have been painfully obvious that something is up with this woman, Rahab. She exposed herself to the entire city of Jericho. She knows who she is. She knows what she's doing. Yet she tells the Hebrew people, I want to go with you. I know that I am not what your people are. I'm, I'm not the way that you think people should be. And I certainly haven't done what you think that God has told me to do. But yet I bring myself before you. I make myself vulnerable because I want to go with you. I want to be with this God. See, faith confronts that part of us that wants to hide, that wants to cover, that wants to pull back. And it says in the words of C.S. Lewis in the last Narnia book, Let's go further up and further in. Let's go deeper into the love of God. And that's what true Christian community celebrates, is vulnerability, a willingness to expose ourselves and share our lives with one another. To not hide. True Christian community wants to bring people before the throne of grace for everything in them that they feel should be hidden and say you don't need to hide that from God. But if we want that, if we want to experience that and participate in that, it has to start with us. We have to be the ones who say we are going to be vulnerable. We are the ones who are going to keep ourselves open and honest and clear. Don't stay at a distance from the people in your church family. Find places where you can grow deeper in community and share your life. Think about things like Rooted and how you can take even a 10-week period to just be more vulnerable with those around you. And don't base it on the trustworthiness of people. Because if you do, you're never gonna make that decision. If it was based on my trustworthiness, it's not a good idea. I fail, I let people down, I sin, I am not who I should be. Don't base your decision to be vulnerable on the trustworthiness of people around you. Base it on the trustworthiness of Christ to care for you. God puts this call on me as much as anyone else and he calls me to be vulnerable and honest with the people of God, not because they will always respond the way that they should, but because I am cared for by a God who will protect me and grow me and minister to me if I am willing to have that faith. No matter how messy and how difficult, come willing to be seen and have faith in your protector. Last thing I wanna highlight in Relab's life is her faith in the provider. 
At Joshua 6, we find that the Israelites have gone into the city. The walls of Jericho fall miraculously down as God leads his people. And the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua says to them in verse 22 of chapter 6, go to the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messages whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Fall of Jericho wasn't the end of Rahab's story. It was the beginning. God didn't just save Rahab. He provided her with a new future. He rewrote her entire story. Rahab would never again just be the prostitute from Jericho. She certainly is not going to be any more someone who just hears about the stories of God. Now she's participating in them. And I don't know about you, but if I could have anything in my life, it would not to be a hearer of the stories of God, to be a part of them. That's what Rahab got. But it didn't end there. See, when they came in, it wasn't just Rahab was saved. We're told that her mother, her father, all of their relatives and everyone who belonged to them was saved. Rahab's faith didn't just make a way for herself, it made a way for everyone around her. That's incredible. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Rahab's family? You mean Rahab, the screw-up? She's the one that has made this way for us to be saved? It's her faith that has rescued us and given us a place in the family of God? But it didn't end there. Rahab would go on to have a child with a man named Salmon, and that child's name was Boaz. You may have heard of Boaz. Boaz is an important biblical character in the story of Ruth. See, Ruth is the story of another Gentile woman, a widowed Moabite who other people had rejected, who was struggling to find hope. And she comes to Israel to find hope and she meets Boaz, the son of Rahab. And Boaz marries Ruth, protecting her and caring for her as the people of Israel had once done for his mother. And the faith of Rahab lives on in her son. But it didn't end there. Rahab also had another famous descendant. A few generations later, a boy would be born in her family line called David. The same David that killed a giant and united a nation. The same David whose commitment and confidence and vulnerability before God made a way for hundreds, and if not thousands of others. She became the great-great-grandmother of a king. But it didn't end there. If we go all the way to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, let me read this genealogy to you that starts from Abraham, the one who received the promise of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Jacob, and this, fast forward all the way to 16. We'll skip all the rest of the names. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It was through Rahab's family 
that God was going to bring his own son into the world. You know the interesting thing about these genealogies that we tend to skip past in our Bibles? There's a lot of things about these that for the people of the day, this, this was their resume. This was the way that they legitimized themselves. They would read off their ancestors and say, well, I'm from the line of Abraham, so that makes me significant and important. How does Jesus legitimize his significance? He tells people, I'm from the line of Rahab, the prostitute. Do you also know that in most genealogies of this day, women would not appear at all because they couldn't inherit anything. And in Jesus' genealogy, there's no less than five women. Would have shocked the people of that day. They did not include people like Rahab, but Jesus does. Because it's not a record of the most righteous or the most noble. It's a record of those whose faith was in the promise of God. Jesus specifically highlights Rahab as one of his ancestors to say she matters to me. And her faith made my birth possible. That's the future and the legacy that God provided to this great woman of faith. He rewrote her story. She reminds us that we never know the impact of an act of faith. And that if we would trust God with the authorship of our story, he will write one better than we can. Don't keep waiting to trust him. Step towards the one who pursues you, who protects you, who provides for you. Said last week that faith always delivers. And if you find yourself now looking for change, looking for hope, looking for an anchor in the midst of storms, then perhaps this morning God is speaking through Rahab to you. And he is inviting you to find a better story. I can't promise you that God will always give you an easy future or a tidy one, but I can promise you he will give you a better one. Charles Spurgeon once said, your physical eyes cannot see the bliss-filled future, so borrow the telescope of faith. Wipe the misty breath of your doubts from the lens and then look through it to behold the coming glory. My prayer for us as a family is that we would have the faith of Rahab, the faith that saw God who could write a better story, the God of, who pursues us and sees us, the God who covers our sin and failings and who reveals the love of his son. Let's pray that God would do that in us today. Father, I thank you for the great faith of Rahab, without whom we wouldn't be able to see the full picture. God, we marvel at your grace that you would do this in the life of Rahab. But not only her, but that you would do it in our lives. For Lord, none of us stand in a better position than Rahab. We are on equal footing before the cross, knowing that we have a great need in you. But God, you show up every time. Father, help us to come before you, to put our confidence in you, to be committed to you, to be vulnerable before you, Lord, so that your story can be written through us as it was through Rahab. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we close this morning, I just, again, want to encourage you as we try to every week, if there's any way we can serve you and support you, that's what we're here for. We want to be a church that has the same faith of Rahab, that makes a place. We have a prayer team available. If you want to come forward, they'd love to pray with you, encourage you. 
Uh, as always, please stop by our welcome desk. If you're a guest, we're so glad you joined us today. We have a gift for you. But let me offer us with today's benediction. Pray this with me. May we go in the name of the God of Rahab, who pursues us, who protects us, and who provides for us. Lord, may you write through us the same story that you wrote through Rahab of the good news of your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.